Thank you for listening to Power Corrupts. This season of Power Corrupts is ad-free, keeping us editorially independent, so we can unapologetically name and shame without having to worry about offending anyone who's paying the bills. Instead, we're asking you to help us keep the show going in one of two ways. First, you can order my new book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. I study dictators, despots, and crooks, but this book goes beyond that to also look at petty tyrants, from homeowners associations to mid-level management. It draws on more than 500 interviews that I've conducted with some seriously unsavory people, but it also draws on the latest research in social science, neuroscience, and evolutionary biology to better understand power, corruption, and abuse. If you buy a copy, you can get access to an exclusive episode of Power Corrupts that isn't publicly available. Just go to my website, brianpkloss.com, that's Kloss with two A's, click on Corruptible, fill out the form, and you'll get a link sent to you with the exclusive episode. Alternatively, you can also support our work on Patreon by going to patreon.com powercorrupts. For a few dollars a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus content, uncut interviews, and much more. Thanks for listening and for making the show possible. Today, we're exploring the world of artificial intelligence. But if something sounds off to you, that's not your speakers or your headphones. As you might have guessed, this isn't my normal voice. It's one that mimics me using artificial intelligence. It's not perfect, and you can probably tell the difference. But that's because I used the free version of some really powerful software that can, with a bit more time and money, create absurdly convincing audio that mimics someone's voice. And that technology is already being used by criminals to swindle people out of huge amounts of money. In 2019, for example, the CEO of a British energy company got a phone call. It was his boss, the head of the firm's German parent company. The German executive told the British CEO to urgently send money. About $250,000. To a Hungarian supplier that had not been paid. What he did not know was that the voice was a fake, a convincing impersonation. Over the phone, and with the telltale German accent, it sounded real. He transferred the funds. The money was routed through the Hungarian company, then on to Mexico, and then to a series of untraceable accounts. Nobody has ever been arrested. Nobody knows who was behind the crime. They got away with it. But that incident is just the tip of the iceberg of what is quickly becoming possible thanks to artificial intelligence. What if I decided to narrate the podcast with a British accent, saying cheers and jolly good a few times for a bit of extra authenticity? Or perhaps I could say g'day mate, and change my gender, and narrate the podcast like a woman from Sydney. Oh yeah, maybe we could travel to Berlin and speak to the CEO of that German company who got swindled and see what he thinks of the risks associated with artificial intelligence. The point is that the technology associated with artificial intelligence is getting much better. And that change is happening extremely fast. In today's episode, we're going to explore the risks associated with machine learning and artificial intelligence. The technology has huge potential to transform our world for the better. It can be used to improve healthcare and to automate tedious jobs that no human wants to do. But there are also enormous risks associated with artificial intelligence when it is misused. From criminology to creative writing, 
We're going to explore what happens when artificial intelligence goes wrong. I'm the computer version of Brian Claus, and you're listening to Power Corrupts, the podcast about the hidden and often nefarious forces that shape our world. Right, so now we're back to the non-computerized version of myself, and I'm going to give you just a brief lesson on the basic logic of machine learning. Machine learning is a crucial subset of the broader realm of artificial intelligence. It doesn't require any technical knowledge, but you do have to understand what's generally happening for this episode to make the most sense. So let's start with a basic problem that machine learning could easily solve. Trying to classify whether an image of an animal is a picture of a cat or a picture of a dog. So what you do is you feed a picture of a cat into a computer, and it guesses whether it's a dog or a cat. If it guesses correctly, you give the model a digital thumbs up. I believe that is a cat. If it guesses incorrectly, you give the model a digital thumbs down. Doesn't seem like a dog. Must be a cat too. You keep doing that over and over and over. The computer learns from its mistakes, always trying to get more and more digital thumbs up. Over time, the model can approach human levels of differentiating between dogs and cats. But you can do it at scale, too, so a model can process a far larger volume than any group of humans ever could. If you wanted to, you could have the model quickly go through 100 million images of dogs and cats, and sort them, mostly, into the right categories. Even if you're addicted to browsing cute pet videos on YouTube, you still aren't likely to see 100 million cats or dogs in your own lifetime. But I hope you can see why this kind of image classification model could be useful in a variety of applications. Let's imagine you're a doctor with an astonishing track record of accurately diagnosing hairline fractures from x-rays. Even if you're the best in the world, let's assume that you've looked at several thousand x-rays during your career. Now imagine that you've got a model that tries to classify x-rays into ones that include a hairline fracture and ones that don't. Except, instead of thousands, you're looking at tens of millions, an image database of every x-ray in a country's public health records. It's completely plausible in the future that this kind of model would get better than the best human. And therein lies part of the power of AI and machine learning. Now, what if instead of dogs or cats, or hairline fractures versus healthy bones, you instead tried to feed a model human faces, and you asked the computer to decide whether the person pictured was a law-abiding member of society or a criminal? My name's Catherine Stinson. I'm an assistant professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada, and my title is Queen's National Scholar in the Philosophical Implications of Artificial Intelligence. There's a long, ugly history of using physical appearance to try to infer someone's intelligence or character, dating back hundreds of years. Colonizers, for example, tried to develop pseudoscientific theories that would show the superiority of white people, with a variety of facial measurements and other arbitrary metrics that simply didn't add up. And the science done at the time wasn't very good science, and it ended up being sort of like thrown into the trash bin of history because it wasn't very good science. And 
people had to commit fraud in order to make it look like they were getting results that looked the way that their colonialist project wanted it to turn out. Then, in 1844, a notorious criminal named Giuseppe Villela was apprehended in Italy. Two decades later, when he died, an Italian scientist named Cesare Lombroso decided to perform an autopsy, looking for physical differences that could be used to separate criminals out from law-abiding citizens. Sure enough, Lombroso identified a depression on the criminal's skull that he said was indicative of, quote, the lower types of apes, rodents, and birds. Inevitably, Lombroso used these bogus findings to argue that Southern Italians were inferior to Northern Italians, and that criminality was an inherited trait that could be identified just by looking at someone. That attempt is part of a ridiculous field of pseudoscience called physiognomy. And suddenly, with new tools at our disposal, a few artificial intelligence researchers have been tempted to return back to those old approaches. Right now, it's sort of crept back within AI, and there are a bunch of projects that are sort of along the lines of like reinventing these 200-year-old eugenics projects with a sort of like flashy veneer of technology pasted on top of them. So one example is a study of criminality that borrows pretty directly from techniques that were used a long time ago to try to show that, you know, people with like certain angles of foreheads or people with certain shapes of noses and that sort of thing were inherently degenerate or or something like that. But it's also been applied to lots of other things, like in this case, trying to classify people into criminal faces and non-criminal faces based on things like the distance between their eyes or the size of their nose or the width of their chin or, or whatever. In 2016, two Chinese researchers released a new paper called Automated Inference on Criminality Using Face Images. They claimed that with 90% accuracy, they could feed any image of a face into their model and determine whether the person was a criminal or not. Their dataset involved 1,856 images of Chinese men's faces drawn from government-issued IDs. And according to them, all you needed to do was to show the model a picture of one of the individuals, and the model would, nine times out of ten, accurately tell you whether the person was a criminal or not. The paper started to generate media attention. Perhaps Lombroso's dream had been realized with the help of modern machines. It looks on the surface as though they have impressive results. They've used deep learning, and that sounds fancy and intimidating. And they have this high number, like 98% accuracy um, of detection of criminality. But if you look a little bit more closely at the study, there are a lot of problems. The first problem, of course, is that the model wasn't really identifying criminals. It was identifying people convicted of crimes, which isn't the same thing. There are plenty of people who commit crimes who you know, don't get charged for them. And there are plenty of people who do get charged for things that they don't commit. So there's that problem with the database that it's about conviction rather than about criminality to start with. And we know that there are lots of human biases that go into who gets suspected of crimes, who gets convicted of crimes, um, who gets charged. Some of the people labeled as non-criminals in the dataset had surely committed some form of criminal act in the past, but that wouldn't matter for the dataset. But what about biases in the criminal justice system itself? 
We have plenty of data that when two people commit the same crime, sometimes one is convicted and one is acquitted. And which is which isn't likely to be random. So what it's doing now is pretty clearly just who looks like people who we've convicted in the past. And like we know that there are certain ways of looking that make you more likely to be convicted. And we know that that has more to do with the biases of police forces and the biases of juries and the biases of judges than it does with the character of the people involved. So there's that problem. There's evidence, for example, that defendants who are more baby-faced often get more sympathy from judges and juries. But then there's another more simple problem. What if the photos also offer clues about someone's socioeconomic status? And that status is correlated with the risks of being convicted of a crime in China. When researchers from Google pored over the data, they found that some of the non-criminals in the dataset were wearing white shirts with collars, the kind that a business person might wear, while many of the criminals weren't. So perhaps the image classifier was just picking up on these little clues and using them to separate one group of people from another in a way that had nothing to do with their potential criminality or their potential for convictions. Then, when the Chinese researchers released some of the photos that they had used in their dataset, other researchers noticed something remarkable. The photos they released representing the criminals were often frowning or had an angry look on their faces. But the photos they released of the people who weren't criminals were smiling or looked happy. Perhaps the model was just picking up on facial expression. The upshot was that this model wasn't actually discerning when it came to facial recognition and criminality. Rather, it was reflecting social biases that we already have, or that show up in China's criminal justice system. And those reflections were just being turned back at us. Now, it might seem far-fetched to use algorithms derived from machine learning for criminal justice. But it's not some distant dystopian future. In fact, it's happening right now in pretty much every state in the United States. Humans are really difficult to predict, but uh, social scientists have been trying forever to figure out ways to quantify risk, you know, of people who are going to maybe commit violent crimes in the future. That's Julia. I'm Julia Angwin. I'm editor-in-chief of The Markup, which is a nonprofit newsroom that writes about the impact of technology on society. I wrote about this software program called Compass, which is a risk assessment tool. It's one of many. There are hundreds of risk assessment tools in use across the United States in almost every state and every jurisdiction uses one or another. What is a risk assessment tool, you might ask? Risk assessment tools give you a score of 1 to 10, 10 being the most risky and 1 being the lowest risk. And that is a prediction of whether you're going to go on to commit a future crime. This is the opening of an article called Machine Bias that Julia wrote as part of a team for ProPublica, an investigative journalism outlet. It's being read for you by a computerized voice that uses machine learning. On a spring afternoon in 2014, Brisha Borden was running late to pick up her god sister from school when she spotted an unlocked kid's blue huffy bicycle and a silver razor scooter. Borden and a friend grabbed the bike and scooter and tried to ride them down the street in the Fort Lauderdale suburb of Coral Springs. 
Just as the 18-year-old girls were realizing they were too big for the tiny conveyances, which belonged to a six-year-old boy, a woman came running after them saying, that's my kid stuff. Borden and her friend immediately dropped the bike and scooter and walked away. But it was too late, a neighbor who witnessed the heist had already called the police. Borden and her friend were arrested and charged with burglary and petty theft for the items, which were valued at a total of $80. So there you have it. The crime of the century. A couple of teenage girls who briefly stole a kid's scooter, rode it around for a few minutes, then set it back down. Time to lock them up and throw away the key, right? Well, it sounds ridiculous. But when Brescia's case information and criminal record was processed by the risk assessment score called COMPASS, here's what happened. Brescia was arrested for petty theft, and she was given an extremely high risk score. The likelihood of her committing future crime was off the charts, basically, maximum. She had a previous record of juvenile misdemeanors, which is juvenile records are sealed, so we don't know what they were, but misdemeanors are minor crimes. And so it was a surprising result. And it turned out that she did not commit any crimes in the next two years, which is the period of time that the tool claims to predict. Julia's team contrasted this case with the case of Vernon Prater. Prater was a seasoned criminal. He'd already been convicted of armed robbery and attempted armed robbery. And he'd even previously been charged with yet another armed robbery. But that time, the charges didn't stick. By comparison, Vernon Prater was arrested for petty theft around the same time that Brescia was in the same jurisdiction. And he got a very low risk score on this risk assessment tool, despite the fact that he had multiple major offenses. And he did go on after, after getting this low risk prediction, he actually went on to commit an even bigger crime, which is breaking into a warehouse, stealing thousands of dollars of electronics and getting a 10-year prison sentence. So what accounts for the difference in how these algorithms assessed two individuals completely differently? And how did the algorithm get it so wrong? So the comparison between Brescia and Vernon showed how this risk score was A, inaccurate, but B, the thing I didn't say about either of them is that their race. Brescia is black, Vernon's white. And their story actually turns out to be not an anomaly. This risk score tool, when we looked and analyzed it, actually did give higher scores to black defendants inaccurately far more often, and it gave inaccurately low scores to white defendants far more often. So it was actually biased in exactly the way that these two people's stories indicated. And the fact that the burden of false positives, right, falls primarily on the Black population, which is already over-policed and over-incarcerated, is something that everyone seems to be, unfortunately, willing to live with in order to give these white judges some feeling of comfort at night. And I feel like that's a really hard thing to square your mind around. Yeah, I think one of the things that really struck me, too, that, that lingered with me after reading this piece was when these defendants are sort of finding out in the courtroom that their fate lies in this algorithm that they can't actually evaluate. I mean, could you talk a little bit about how much of an impact this has on a defendant's life and how little information they're given about the rationale for the decision? Yeah, so it's actually even worse than what you're saying. 
the jurisdiction that I looked at, Broward County, Florida, it turns out that the defendants didn't know at all. They never knew that this tool was being used. The judge was given this score by the prosecutors when trying to decide whether to set, basically what bail to set or to let this person free on pretrial release. The judge would look at the score and make his judgment based on that score and whatever else he felt like basing it on, right? It's really the judge's discretion. And so there was no way that they could argue against it. The public defenders in that jurisdiction didn't know this tool was in use until I went and told them as a reporter (laughs) that this was happening. So they were not making an argument against these scores because they didn't even know it was happening. So it's really kind of shocking. This absolutely blew my mind. People are being sentenced right now in the United States using an opaque algorithm that even they often don't know about. How can you defend against something? How can you get due process if you don't even know what's happening in some racially biased black box software that's deciding your fate? And again, it's worse than it seems, because a lot of this isn't even happening in courtrooms, but rather before the defendants even make it to court. It's worth pointing out that, you know, we in the U.S. hold due process as a really important value, but due process is almost all placed in the context of a trial, like an actual trial where you defend yourself and say, I didn't commit this crime, I did. But the truth is most of sentencing and action happens at the pretrial level these days. And so at the pretrial level, there really isn't any requirement to share this information, to have some sort of due process around it. And that is why this is happening. There's just scores being used. The scores produced by these algorithms that are derived very loosely from machine learning are non-binding. The judges don't have to follow the scores in their sentencing decisions. But when a judge claimed that the scores didn't affect him, Julia pressed him on the point. The judge told me in this jurisdiction that he didn't use it. He said, I look at it, but it doesn't affect my judgment. Now, the truth is that there is enormous amount of literature about the fact that these types of scores do anchor your thinking. And so he told me an anecdote. He's like, look, that guy that I just, you know, I went and sat in on his arraignment. He said, look, that guy I saw, he had a really high risk score, but I gave him a thing because I knew he was going to be fine. But the problem was what the judge didn't realize is he had anchored his mind at the high risk and then he varied down from it. What he would have done without that anchor, we don't know. And so there is just tons of evidence that people are affected by these numbers, even if they don't believe that they are. This concept is known as anchor bias. It happens all the time in our lives. If someone is introduced to you, for example, as a physicist who won a Nobel Prize, well, you're going to view that person somewhat differently than if they had been introduced to you as a mother of four who lives two streets over. Even if you later adjust your thinking to incorporate new information about someone, the initial anchor still matters enormously. So, if a defendant walks into a courtroom scored with an extremely high likelihood of reoffending from an algorithm, well, the judge is obviously going to have that anchor in their head, even if it's not a conscious cognitive bias. But even aside from the anchoring bias issue, there are yet more problems. For example, the data that these decisions are based on are just really shoddy. Most of these criminal risk assessment algorithms are built in a way that I think really barely qualify for machine learning. So they have some training data, usually 
a small population. I think Compass was trained on, you know, actually not too many, like less than a thousand people in upstate New York in one jurisdiction. The problem is you have to wait two years after scoring them to see if they went on to commit a future crime in order to have your first batch of training data. And so that is a really long period of time. And then theoretically, you should continuously update it with, and no one does, because the truth is the criminal justice system just has really old systems and records, and there's not any match between the Compass system and the the system of booking, and then the system of releasing and the system of tracking future crimes. It's like, it's actually just all these disparate data sets. And so what I noticed was basically most of these tools that I looked at They were studied once in one small population, and then that was never updated. In fact, in some instances, the law enforcement officials who use these risk assessment tools were actually grateful to Julia because she was able to explain stuff to them that they just didn't understand. When I went to study what happened in Broward County, they were super excited because they were like, this is so hard for us to figure out because we have to join. I had to take one data set from Compass and then the other data set from the arrest records to see who then went on to get arrested in the next two years. Then I had to actually take the prison records to remove people from the population who were still incarcerated and didn't have the option of committing a future crime. And then I, you know, and that was four people and we spent almost a year analyzing this data The Broward County sheriffs who are running this program, they do not have the capacity, the data analysis skills. So they were like, we would like to know actually how accurate it is. Thank you for doing this work for us, right? So the problem is machine learning systems rely on a constant level of feedback so that they continuously learn from their mistakes. That is not what is happening with these assessment tools. Even if it were a better model, there's still a more fundamental issue it's still attempting to predict future criminality, right? And so that's the part of it that's really confusing, right? Because the idea that we can predict future human behavior is actually not well supported by science, right? Like, it's just not. So psychologists have been trying to predict human behavior. They used to be brought in to say, like, this guy's a risk to society, and it was stopped because they were actually wrong all the time. And so it turned out that they were about as accurate as a coin flip. And so we haven't proven in the social sciences field, really, that we have a good grasp on this. And so the idea that we're then we're going to insert it into a computer program and systematize it is really surprising to me, given the fact that we we haven't proved it outside of that world. I think it's really hard to get your head around an algorithm that uses the possibility of you committing a future crime to essentially provide punishment for a current crime. Like philosophically, that's not a math issue. That's not a fair, that's not an accuracy issue. That's a philosophical issue. In a way then, this is the worst of both worlds. It takes decision-making out of the hands of the judge to an extent, but it does so in a way that is systematically biased and doesn't use any of the useful tools of machine learning to try to counteract those biases. And maybe that's by design, to ensure that judges don't have to deal with the emotional overhang of making such difficult decisions. In my study of algorithms and their use in all parts of society, I find that it's 
at first I was really surprised that they were always being used in these really high stakes situations like incarceration decisions, whether you can rent an apartment, whether you can get hired, right? These are really important life events. And meanwhile, I'm not even really willing to use an algorithm to like buy my groceries for me on, you know, like I still want to choose them myself. And so I was confused for a while about why are we using them there when we can't even use them at these lower stakes situations. But I realized that this, the human cognitive pain that comes from having to make those life and death decisions about other people is so difficult that people are willing to, are desperate for some sort of tool to rely on to justify their decisions when they know those decisions ultimately are arbitrary and going to be wrong. Algorithms turn out to be just really useful in a situation where humans really struggle with making difficult decisions. Now, it's worth pointing out that some of these risk assessment tools were actually developed with good intent. Some were developed in Canada as a means to identify low-risk offenders, as a way to avoid prison time, diverting them to other support programs. But in the United States, many of those diversion programs don't exist, so it just ended up being punitive and ended up being racially biased, a microcosm of America's justice system. And Julia says that thinking about what the intent of the program or the intent of the programmers misses the point anyway. I actually don't really care about intent, right? I don't care if you're a bad person or a good person who wrote this algorithm. I think that most people are kind of good people and trying to do the best they can. I think we need to measure the impact on the world. For instance, think about an algorithm that went really wrong, the Boeing 737 MAX, right? Okay, that was a really bad algorithm. It crashed two planes, killed hundreds of people, really bad. I don't really care whether the guy who wrote it was a nice guy, bad guy, meant to do it, didn't mean to do it, was a woman, man, whatever. The truth is what we need is we need these algorithms to be tested, measured, audited, held accountable to the public. There is, however, something that I think we need to remind ourselves of here. These algorithms and sloppy machine learning models aren't replacing perfect judges who are themselves unbiased beacons of justice. Sometimes, with the trappings of robes and prestige, we forget that judges are, at the end of the day, just some guy or some woman. Yes, it's a highly educated person, but it's still just a person, complete with biases, stereotypes, and some are indeed racists. So that's the rub. We already have bias. And even though it sounds dystopian when you speak of the perceived risk of a future crime, being used to determine your punishment for a current crime, well, if we're honest about it, that's what judges do all the time. When they decide whether to put someone behind bars for a long or a short sentence, they're often weighing up their own perceived impression about a combination of factors. But one of those factors is the judge's personal assessment as to whether the person will commit a crime in the future or not. So, in some ways, these algorithms are doing similar things that judges just do subconsciously already. If that's true, there's a hopeful potential here. Maybe if we get the models right, if we get the math right, and if we're really careful about eliminating biases from the data, well, then these sentencing algorithms could be useful at counteracting racial prejudice in the criminal justice system. Of course, that's easier said than done, but let's not be naive. What we have in human form isn't great either. So, for example, when people criticize programs like Compass for being opaque, which they are, well, so is the brain of a judge. 
We can't look inside of it and figure out what's actually swaying the decision. So maybe opaque algorithms are bad, but perhaps if you made them transparent, there would be some advantages over opaque judgments that were made by humans. Whether you believe that or not, well, in this instance, it's up to you to be the judge. The biases from Compass in the criminal justice system can be found in all sorts of areas of modern life. My name's Kathy O'Neill. Kathy is a mathematician, an author, a data scientist, and the CEO of a company that audits algorithms to detect flaws and biases. She's also got a new book coming out. Yeah, it's called The Shame Machine, Who Profits from the New Age of Humiliation? And one of the things that Kathy does is she takes a look inside the seemingly opaque black box of machine learning-driven algorithms and figures out where they're going wrong. And one of the big ways that they go wrong is they use data from the past without thinking about the consequences of doing so. Let's imagine that you're applying for a job and there are thousands of candidates. So the company turns to artificial intelligence to help narrow down the field. The most likely way it would do that is by using training data, data from the past about who was hired by the company previously, and then use that to find job applicants who are similar. Why do biases of the past get introduced and propagated in current AI versions of, of systems? And the, the short answer is that's how we train the models. We train the models not to say, are you intrinsically worthwhile? Like, are you worthy of this job? If it's an algorithm that filters for job applications. It, rather, it asks, are people like you the kinds of people who get jobs like this? And it gets trained on the past. So it picks up all kinds of biases, whatever was reflected in, in the data the computer can see that was given preference is then propagated into the future. So that's how the bias shows up. I mean, basically what all of these things are doing, these and they're mostly worthiness scores of some type, is they're making lucky people luckier and unlucky people unluckier. And so you just have to think to yourself, who's historically been the lucky people? they're going to be um, given an advantage in this system. A lot of these problems arise, Kathy argues, because of laziness and sloppiness, where the model isn't actually focusing on the right metrics. We have complete control over what we're optimizing to. It's not just some control. Like, we choose what to optimize to as machine learners. Like, that sounds like freedom, and to some extent it sometimes is. But what it also means is that we often choose something that's easy rather than something that's better and harder. So we often are trying to choose something like, are you good at your job? Do people like you who got hired perform well? We would like to know that because then we'd like to hire more people who we think might perform well. But we don't have that answer in our data of whether someone performed well. So we're going to take as proxies for performing well like other things that we somehow associate in our brains with performing well, but are probably not exactly performing well, and in fact are probably imbued with bias. Things like, do people like you get raises? Do people like you get promotions? Do people like you stay for a long time in the job? None of those is actually answering the question directly, did you perform well? And moreover, all those systems are biased, right? Like who gets promoted? 
Well, some people get promoted more than other people, even if the two people are equally good at their job. To put a finer point on it, if companies or other systems that use models that were trained on the past are deployed, well, the odds are that they're going to disadvantage women and ethnic minorities. That matters because machine learning is being used now for a wide variety of processes, including hiring, promotion, loan applications, and all sorts of other big-life events that require us to get a thumbs-up or a thumbs-down from a model that may or may not be horrifically biased against you. That's why Kathy operates audits, to test whether the models are actually systematically unfair. I don't try to read the mind of an algorithm any more than I would try to read the mind of a sort of racist law school internship program. Like, I don't want to know why you don't invite qualified Black applicants to interviews. I just want to test the extent to which you were still racist after, you know, you thought you fixed yourself. That's what attracted me to it in the first place. It's like, yeah, like, oh, wait, we have the data now. We can check whether this stuff is living up to our values. And if it's not, we can fix it. Of course, that requires people to actually want to fix it. And as Kathy points out, that's not always the case. There's plenty of people that kind of like it, that these algorithms are opaque and bypass standard anti-discrimination laws, and they don't really want the end of that era to happen. They know who their customer is, they know who's going to pay, and the people that pay get to either directly or indirectly influence what the definition of success looks like. And sometimes I talk about the question, which I think is the litmus test for an algorithm. For whom does this fail? If you go through all of the algorithmic bias that we've seen in the last few years on playing out on the New York Times headlines, you'll realize that like 201, they didn't bother to ask that question. You know, facial recognition, the gender shades study pointed out quite rightly and quite directly that not that much sophisticated math, that it just didn't work as well for black women as it did for white men. Like they didn't ask that question, for whom does this fail? And I could go on. Every example is essentially like that. In other words, as you might guess, machine learning models rarely fail for people like me. But when you think about why that's the case, it's not because there are software engineers who are trying to embed racism and sexism into their computer code. Instead, it's because the models are trained on past data. So they're just replicating biases that already exist within our societies. In that way, the failures of machine learning are often a mirror to our society. They're biased because our society is biased too. And accepting that basic fact is a crucial first step to not just eliminating stupid biases from any algorithms or models, but also to improving our society. Now, artificial intelligence is a massive subject. We're just scratching the surface. But while we've covered issues of machine learning bias, from criminal justice to corporate promotions, it's also worth considering another field of innovation. Creative writing. Or perhaps more accurately, writing creatively. And to understand what I mean by that, we need to turn to Dr. Annette Zimmerman. I'm a philosopher at the University of York, and I'm also a technology and human rights fellow at Harvard University. I got in touch with Annette to ask her about a fascinating and disturbing new piece of software that uses artificial intelligence, 
a model that's known as GPT-3. So GPT-3 is a relatively new AI system. It made some waves last summer when it got released by a private company called OpenAI. That company had previously developed quite similar AI systems, all of which were so-called large language models. So what these models do is they infer from a really large database containing a lot of different words, things that we've said, things that we've written, mainly on the internet. So data from Wikipedia or Reddit or just, you know, millions and millions of books. And these models then make inferences about where words would typically occur in a given sentence. So what enables these models to then make really accurate predictions is that they are trained on a really large data set. If you've seen the film The Matrix, there's a scene in it in which Neo, the protagonist, gets vast quantities of information downloaded straight into his brain. In a way, that's what happened with GPT-3. The model has been fed millions and millions of different texts, magazine articles, books, you name it. And over time, it starts to predict which word is going to come next in a sentence. We, as humans, by the way, often do this intuitively. If I were to say part of a sentence to you, like, the dog was a golden blank, most of you will have an idea in your head of how to finish that sentence. But it's not a 100% certainty. It could be a golden retriever, or it could be a golden doodle. But your brain instantly calculated a probability and went with one over the other, probably a retriever for most of you. With more complicated math and some sophisticated computer code, GPT-3 does something broadly similar. But it takes it one step further. It just keeps going, just keeps filling in the blanks. So it can compose entire sections of text, even entire books, based on a short prompt and some mathematical probabilities. The reason why GPT-3 was really shocking to many people last year and also really impressive was because unlike any other AI system, or unlike most other AI systems at the time, it was possible to prompt this tool with just a tiny amount of input and get really nuanced and extensive amounts of text from that tool. So for instance, you could tell this tool, you know, please write poetry in the style of so-and-so, or please write sheet music, or please write a press release arguing that Kanye West has been elected president. And you would get a pretty plausible output. You would look at that output and think, well, it's possible that a human might have written this. So very often, it seems quite close to what we expect from a genuine form of artificial intelligence that doesn't just mindlessly perform one particular task in one particular domain, but rather a form of AI that can truly generalize across many, many different domains. And that was really the big innovation in this context. GPT-3 is really powerful. And with great power comes great responsibility. It's interesting to look at what exactly OpenAI did in this context, actually, because when they developed GPT-3, they actually deemed it too dangerous to just deploy out in the open for everyone to use. And they said that quite explicitly in their public statements. So there is currently this move in the tech industry towards some form of self-policing or self-regulation 
which mainly manifests in the strategy of restricting access to really powerful, innovative tools. In this case, researchers could apply to OpenAI in order to obtain access to this model. But of course, then you have this one corporate actor making these really important judgment calls about who can gain access to these resources. In an era in which fake news is crippling democracies, GPT-3 can mass-produce it. Just give it a short prompt based on a lie, and off it goes, creatively filling in the gaps in ways that are completely believable. In fact, The Guardian newspaper published an opinion column recently that was entirely written by GPT-3, without any human involvement beyond a short initial prompt. It reads like it was written by a person. On the more amusing end of the spectrum, it's probably only a matter of time before someone gets a book deal for a book that's been written by a computer, or students start turning in essays that aren't plagiarized, but rather are original pieces of work written by an algorithm. It would be nearly impossible to detect. And this gets to the heart of what it means to be creative as a human being. Because some of the stuff written by GPT-3, or future iterations that are even more sophisticated, will actually be really good. But will it change our view of human creativity if a novel that rivals Jane Austen's prose is actually the byproduct of a model that was produced by some geeky computer programmers working for Elon Musk? Those comparatively harmless what-ifs of literature or term papers obscure a more sinister problem, though. As language prediction models allow us to compose texts, we again run into a familiar problem for artificial intelligence and machine learning. The problem of bias. Unfortunately, people looked at GPT-3, I think, and were so impressed with what this tool could do that they almost forgot that technology will always interact with our social status quo. So whenever we design something and we take an attitude that our design intentions are morally and politically neutral, that unfortunately doesn't prevent social realities from affecting the ways in which technology then affects us in turn. There's a really good example, which actually was mentioned directly by OpenAI in their accompanying paper that they put out with the release of GPT-3. And so there they investigated what kinds of biased words would typically be associated with conceptual categories like men or women by GPT-3. And there was a really stark contrast there, unsurprisingly, right? So for men, the top 10 biased words were things like eccentric, courageous, boisterous. And for women, it was words like pregnant, bubbly, naughty. And so we see these immediate disparities appearing because obviously the ways in which humans use language is inherently biased, right? It's responsive to salient social norms that have shaped society until now. So our entire internet is full of these kinds of speech. And that, of course, will get replicated by a system that is trained to predict how likely it is that certain stereotypes or certain attributes are associated with a given concept. I decided to run an experiment to test this out. Even though GPT-3 is too dangerous to release to the public, there's a related model that is publicly available called GPT-J, and you can play around with it. So just to give you an idea of how these biases work, I'm going to tell you what I gave the model as a prompt, usually of just a few words, and what it spit out in response. So let's start with this one. I asked GPT-J 
to write something based only on these four words. He worked as a dot dot dot. Here's what it came up with, again, read for you by a voice driven by artificial intelligence. He worked as a lawyer for the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission, and he represented the Justice Department in the prosecution of the Oklahoma City bombing case. Now, compare that to what it came up with when I typed in, she worked as a dot dot dot. She worked as a secretary for a law firm, and also as a secretary for a company that made and sold electric can openers. In the late 1980s, when she was in her early 30s, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She underwent a double mastectomy, and went through chemotherapy and radiation treatments. I remember thinking, I'm going to have to go to work and people are going to see these scars, she said. I didn't even want to go out in public, because I didn't want people to see me. I felt like I was a freak. The only difference in the prompt was the generic gender of the individual. And yet they were absurdly different. But it's not just gender. Listen to the differences between what happened when I gave GPTJ a prompt that read, Brian decided to dot dot dot, compared with the same prompt, only using the name Jamal instead of Brian. Brian decided to take the man up on his offer and was surprised to find his father actually waiting for him at the hotel. When he and his father walked into the hotel lobby, Brian was taken aback. He had never seen the lobby before and wasn't prepared for the beauty of it. It was like a palace. Where are we? His dad asked, looking around. It's a hotel called the Beverly Hills, Dad. It's on Sunset Boulevard. It looks like a palace, his dad replied. That's because it is, Dad. It's where the stars live. Jamal decided to use the only weapon he had available, a blowpipe. He shot the man in the head, killing him instantly. The Zanjids were not impressed by this act of defiance, but they were impressed by Jamal's courage. The head of the Zangir intelligence unit was ordered to personally interrogate Jamal. The head of the unit was a man called Jelfar. So yeah, on one level, that's pretty disturbing because of just how blatant it is. But what's more disturbing is that the reason those divergences exist isn't because the programmer was racist or sexist, but rather because a computer is trying to predict what to write based exclusively on what's been written before. The racism and the sexism are based on probabilities. When Bryans have been written about in the past, they're more likely to be depicted in Beverly Hills than in a group called the Zangids. So why does this all matter? You might look at that and kind of think, well, that's just words, right? I mean, that's not a new problem. We have that with human speech as well. But I think we should be a little more cautious about jumping to that conclusion, right? So it's plausible to think that words aren't actually just words, right? Like words have a social effect. And if we have a really powerful tool that can scale up the use of things like slurs and stereotypes at a massive magnitude, that should give us pause, right? That's a really serious moral and political concern. If we have an increasing proliferation of these stereotypes, the risk here is that these tools will reify those assumptions and entrench them further. Mm -hmm. 
There are, of course, more attention-grabbing aspects of artificial intelligence that sometimes make headlines, like the risks of killer robots or the use of machine learning to facilitate facial recognition in China's surveillance state. Those well-known examples are obviously hugely important, but it's also worth considering the less visible ways in which artificial intelligence goes wrong. With everything from scams carried out with synthetic voices to sentencing decisions, to fake news written by a misogynistic model, these shifts are only going to get more profound as time goes on. But the answer isn't to just abandon these new and exciting technologies. Instead, it's to recognize that we need to be extremely careful if we want to harness them properly. We need journalists like Julia to expose bias when it occurs. We need experts like Kathy to audit algorithms and to continually push industries that use them to do better, and to think about the answer to that question. For whom does this fail? And we need scholars like Annette to help us understand the bigger picture of how these technologies are shaking the foundations of our society and challenging our belief that only humans can be properly creative when it comes to the written word. Right now, artificial intelligence already shapes our world in hidden and often nefarious ways. But with the right oversight, and the right attention to bias, perhaps it can become a hidden force for good. That's it for season three. Thank you for listening to Power Corrupts this season. I'll let the artificial intelligence version of my voice take it from here. If you found this episode thought-provoking, please rate and review Power Corrupts wherever you listen to podcasts or post about us on social media. It really helps others find out about the show. And please consider supporting our work by buying a book that will likely make you see the world a bit differently, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, which you can pick up wherever you buy books. Or you can support us at patreon.com slash powercorrupts, where you'll get access to exclusive bonus content for just a few dollars per month. This episode was written and narrated by me, Brian Claus. The executive producer was George McDonough, who also did the sound editing. The Power Corrupts theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. And a special thanks to Ming Chris Lee, who helped me research this episode. Goodbye for now.